Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker helps book publishers, authors, and premium brands reach an engaged audience of authors, artists, editors, agents, producers, bloggers, media professionals, and readers. Lots of readers. Litbreaker ads appear on The Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, HTML Giant, Full Stop, The Nervous Breakdown, Plowshares, and other high quality magazines and blogs featuring literary, arts-oriented, and pop culture content and above-the-fold advertising. Visit litbreaker.com for more information about advertising packages. Litbreaker is also accepting new partner sites in literary, general interest, mystery, creative writing, young adult, romance, and other book genres. That's the Litbreaker Ad Network, an ad network for the literary, arts, and culture web. Be sure to visit litbreaker.com for more information. It's an ad network for smart, interesting, readerly people. Go and advertise on it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. <laughs> right. Okay, you guys, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is about bookmakers. This is a podcast, and it is happening inside of you. Thank you for being here, wherever you happen to be. My name is Brad Listy. I'm your host, and I'm here in Los Angeles, California, in the desert wasteland of America. Uh, so, Memorial Day weekend. I hope you had a good... Uh, long weekend. I hope it was enjoyable. Uh, mine was good. I stayed here. We stayed here in town, spent a lot of time with my daughter and my wife. We did some stuff. We went to the beach on a, actually we went, we went to the beach two of the three days. And, uh, the first day we ate dinner in the evening 
which is when people eat dinner typically. And uh, we had some tacos at this taco place called uh, Oscars, I think. Is that what it's called? I can't remember. But, we, you know, it's a taco place. We go there. We take our seat. And after a minute or so, my wife looks at me and she says to me quietly, do you see that? Do you see what I'm seeing? And instantly I knew what she meant just by her tone and her expression. You know, you get to, you know, you're married to someone, you understand the shorthand. So I knew that my wife meant that she uh, had seen a celebrity, which happens with some frequency in Los Angeles. You know, you see people around town and then you mention it under your breath to whoever you're with. So, uh, my wife said this, you know, says this to me and I start looking around as discreetly as I can, as if I'm looking for, you know, like our waitress or something. And I can't see anyone famous. So, uh, finally I look over at my wife and I'm like, who, you know, just tell me. And my wife says, uh, quietly, uh, Katy Perry. And she indicates with a rightward glance. So, uh, you know, then I start looking, uh, I guess it was to my left and behind this guy across the way is Katy Perry over in the corner. And I can't really see her. Like I can't see her face because, uh, this guy's blocking my view. I can only see like, you know, her black hair. And then I caught like a flash of bright red lipstick. And then, you know, I look across the table and my wife is taking a picture <laughs> of our uh, daughter with her phone trying to get Katie in the background. You know, we're, we're shameless. We don't care. We'll do that kind of thing. We'll go there. But uh, what's interesting is that it turned out to not be Katy Perry. It wasn't her. Uh, which sort of, you know, makes it doubly pathetic. We didn't realize this until about an hour into the experience. You know, like we took the photo, we talked about it for 30 seconds, and then we, you know, got lost in our meal. And uh, then when the meal was almost over, I finally looked over and got a good look at this woman and realized that it was not Katy Perry. 100% certain that it was not her. There were, you know, there were a lot of similarities almost to the point where it looked like this girl was trying to impersonate Katy Perry, or, or at least like co-opt her aesthetic in a really serious and detailed way. But you know, it wasn't, it wasn't her. And, uh, we had spent like, you know, an hour feeling like it was, and I gotta be honest, it made it feel, it made the dinner feel a little bit more exciting. And I was like, Oh my God, this is sort of funny. You know, we're eating tacos next to a pop star. <laughs> I don't know. It adds an element. It adds like some sort of element. But uh, when you realize that, you know, that it's not her, it's sort of deflating. The excitement is gone. It's just some girl in lipstick. You know, and I, you know, I don't, and I'm not even a Katy Perry fan. I don't dislike her, but it's just not my, I don't, I don't think I'm the demographic. So that was one, uh, non-celebrity sighting. And then this morning, just this morning, a few hours ago, I had another encounter 
which was sort of strange. You know, I got up this morning and I went to the gym and I, and I walk there because it's not that far from where we live and I'm walking and I have my headphones on and I'm uh, at an intersection and I sort of look to my left and I see a Toyota Prius that is about to make a, a turn onto the street that I'm about to cross, if that makes sense. And, uh, the driver is waiting for oncoming traffic. And then, you know, so I stopped because it looked like the car was about to turn. And then there was some eye contact with the, uh, driver who was female. And it was, it was like one of those things where I stopped and then I started and then I stopped again. And then I, I sort of like smiled and waved her on. And it was kind of a funny moment because she was stopping and then starting too, and, you know, it was sort of like this awkward thing, but like one of us was in a car and one of us was on foot. And so I finally let her go. And as she drove by, uh, she was laughing a little bit and I, I found myself laughing too. And it was then, uh, that I realized in a flash, uh, that it was Alicia Silverstone, the actress. You know who I'm talking about? She was in the movie Clueless. That's probably her most famous work. And she was also in a uh, in an Aerosmith video, or maybe multiple Aerosmith videos back in the day. So, you know, anyway, I, like I, it happens quickly. And I make note of it mentally. And then I go to the gym, and I walk in, and I, uh, I you know, I, I swipe my card. It's not even a card. It's on my phone. But I, I enter the gym... And I identify myself and then I go upstairs to, uh, to where the gym is. And, uh, I immediately see another celebrity, almost the first person I saw and I recognize her, but I, I don't know her name. Uh, but what's weird is that she had also starred in the movie clueless. <laughs> uh, I'm not kidding. And, uh, I couldn't place her. It's a black girl very attractive, very fit, working out with a personal trainer. And, it, you know, I was like, oh, my God. Like, that's two uh, actresses from the movie Clueless within 10 minutes of one another in separate locations. So it was kind of messing with my head. And uh, the actress's name, incidentally, is Stacy Dash. I looked it up. She played Dion. Uh, in Clueless, Alicia Silverstone's friend. So Stacy Dash is there at my gym working out and I'm, you know, I'm nearby uh, pretending to like lift a weight <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, uh, like, should I say something? Not because I want to like buddy up to her, but because like, this is genuinely strange and I feel like maybe I'm supposed to share this information. And, you know, as I am uh, want to do, I, I started to entertain a scenario in my mind where I would get up and I would walk over to Stacy and I would say something uh, to the effect of, hey, uh, you know, you're not going to believe this, but I just saw Alicia Silverstone out on the street. She almost hit me with her car. Uh, we had a brief interaction in traffic. And, you know, in my head, it was this great moment. There was laughter. There was disbelief. There was some light banter about the odd coincidence. Uh, I, I, I 
imagine that perhaps uh, Stacy would send a text message to Alicia as if they're still friends. Maybe they are. Though somehow I doubt it. And, uh, you know, and then I, I envisioned myself making a joke like, you know, is like, is Paul Rudd here? Because he also starred in Clueless. Do you get it? And so on and so forth. But, uh, I didn't say anything. I never do. I never do. You know, all this stuff happens in my head, which is probably for the good. My guest today is Deb Olin Unferth. And uh, I don't know about you, but I like saying that name. Deb Olin Unferth. The word Unferth in particular is fun to say. So uh, Deb Olin Unferth is here. She's one of our finest writers for my money. And she's the author of three books. There's a story collection called Minor Robberies, uh, a novel called Vacation, both of which are published by McSweeney's. And her memoir, entitled Revolution, The Year I Fell in Love and Went to Join the War, was a finalist for the 2012 National Book Critics Circle Award. Uh, And that book is available from Henry Holt. Uh, I'm very pleased to have Deb here, and I think you're going to like the conversation. So here she is, ladies and gentlemen, the lovely and talented Deb Olin Unferth. I am in Middletown, Connecticut, where I teach. I'm about a block from the university um, in my apartment. And in my apartment, I'm sitting in the living room, and I have my dog curled up next to me. Um, What kind of dog? He is, I believe he's a Yorkie Schnauzer mix. I don't know. He's a rescue, so we don't really know exactly. But he looks kind of like a Yorkie Schnauzer mix. And he just got his hair cut, and he's a little bit traumatized. Yeah. I remember, you know, my dog, I have a French bulldog, so we don't give him haircuts, but I used to have a dog. That would get, you know, uh, sent to the groomer and would get shaved down. And it, w- it was always, like, pretty traumatic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so you teach at Wesleyan. Is that how you pronounce it? It's Wesleyan. Yeah. Right? Yeah, Wesleyan. Uh, how do you like that? I like it a lot. I mean, the students are terrific. The faculty is, you know, they're just outstanding and really funny and ironic and interesting to talk to. And um, same with the students. And uh, the campus is beautiful, and they seem to have a lot of money to bring people in. It's it's pretty nice. Okay. It's a pretty good situation. It's kind of a tough question. I feel I'm feeling sort of bad about asking it because what are you supposed to say? They're your employer. Like you can't start bagging on them. You know. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> but I mean, I you know I talk to a lot of writers, a lot of whom teach, and um, you know the two professions seem to have a, a, a symbiosis. That's pretty common. And do you find that you get something from it creatively? I mean, do you consistently find rewards in it for your own work? Or do you feel like it uh, it takes away from the energies that you would otherwise devote to writing? I would say that the teaching itself definitely contributes to my creative life. Um, both the literature classes and the, cre- and the fiction workshops that I do. Um, 
the administration stuff, like going to meetings and stuff like that, that's like sort of killing me inside day by day. <laughs> so that does not contribute to my creativity. But fortunately, there's not too much of that. And so, um, so just this working with the students definitely because um, I they're required to read whatever it is that I want them to read. And so then I get to just assign my favorite books and talk about them with really smart people. And, uh, you know, and they're required to talk in class and tell me what they think. So it's, it's, it's a pretty good deal. And, and I mean, I like reading their stories. So sometimes it gets a little overwhelming at certain parts of the semester, but generally I like reading the stuff they, they read. So yeah, it's fun. And so what about like general, cause I think you and I are close in age, somewhat close in age. I was born in 75, but um, you're teaching, you know, you're teaching people who are, uh, you know, a generation behind. Is that right? I never know how they delineate these things. But um, the question I want to ask is, like, what do you think about young people today versus uh, how you feel you were at the same age? Like, are, are we improving? Like, do you feel like there's a regression? Like, what's your sense of the college age generation today? Well, Wesleyan is a very particular crowd, but I did used to teach at, at the University of Kansas. I mean, I've, I've taught other, other kids, but um, the Wesleyan group, they are astonishingly well organized, well put together. I mean, even the ones that are fuck-ups are really doing interesting things. So, and I was just a fuck-up at that age and nothing else. <laughs> so... Um, I'm, I'm astonished at their emotional maturity and I don't know. I mean, I don't know where it comes from. Are the kids just getting, are they just getting older, younger, or are they, it's, it's more like being polished though. You know, they're very polished, which, um, is astonishing. And, um, so, and I remember being in can when I taught at the university of Kansas, maybe there was a little bit less polished, but they still seemed to be much more together overall than I was and at that so, age. And so what do you, where do you think the polish comes from? At Wesleyan? Well, I think that in order to get into Wesleyan, you have to have been a pretty organized citizen, a pretty dedicated citizen. Um, you know, you have to have gotten good grades, which means, you know, that generally, you know, you have to be pretty, not just smart, but also socially, um, adept. Um, so, and then also, you know, you have to have all of these extracurricular activities, which I mean, when I was in high school, I mean, those kinds of things were so uncool. There was no way anyone was going to get me to do extracurricular activities. (laughs) And, um, so, you know, so they've done all that stuff. They've been, you know, they've been doing all this stuff for years and their parents are, I mean, that's another thing, you know, like the parents, the parents are really, uh, well, you know, well put together people. I mean, they're, they're journalists for the New York times, they're writers, they're, you know, great musicians and, you know, they're, uh, filmmakers, you know, all kinds of things. So, I mean, it's just, they just, they've had, they've had that kind of modeling for a really long time. So when you, when you look back, I mean, and I think your memoir is about this at least in part, but, uh, I, I find myself, and maybe this is just what every human being does as they get closer to uh, middle age or whatever, but trying to resolve the tension between uh, 
who we were and who we are now and being able to see with the benefit of hindsight mistakes that we've made or modes of being that we engaged in that might not have been so wise or, um, you know, maybe there are positive things that have dissipated <laughs> uh, <laughs> as we've gotten older, you know, like, do you find yourself wrestling with that sort of thing? And, and do you think that maybe having exposure to younger people uh, via your job makes you more aware of it than you otherwise would be? Well, maybe. I mean, you know, in terms of, of in terms of them, I mean, I love who they are. I mean, I just, they're just, they're, the fact that they have gotten themselves to this point at this age only might, makes me like them more. And, um, you know, so they, they're just more interest. They're just very interesting people. And so if I think about, you know, who I was, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I mean, I guess that they probably wouldn't have hired me here if I hadn't also been an interesting person to some degree. So maybe I've become an interesting person, but I don't think that I was at that age. But maybe maybe I actually was and I didn't know it or I mean, I don't know. It's 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 a tough question to think about. Is that what you're asking me? Kind of. Yeah. I mean, I often say to myself, like when I'm feeling kind about myself, I'll say, you know, I was really confused, but I had good instincts. Like that's, a, that's as charitable as I can be. And I, I mean, and I think that's a genuine compliment. You know what I'm saying? Like I can look mm -hmm. back on my youthful self and say, you know what? I didn't quite have it figured out. Or uh, in a lot of cases I was really confused, but I feel like I had decent instincts at the age of 18, 19, you know, just maybe didn't know exactly how to act on them or something. Were you already interested in what you're interested in now at that age? Yeah, you know, I no, I mean, yes and no. I, I think I was I was more serious than some of my friends, but less serious than um, a, a lot of people, to say the least. Like I was, I was not as serious as I could have been about my education when I was that age, and you know, I don't know what to say about that. I, I think I just I wanted to live and have an exciting life more than I wanted to like bury myself in a library or go to class or, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think there's some, you know, there's some positive aspects to that, but you know, it's easy to look back and kind of want to have a do over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so what about you? Like when it comes to your writing life, I mean, obviously, um, you know, your forays into Central America are well documented at that age. But, you know, from a writing perspective, like how early did it start for you? I didn't start writing fiction until I was 25. Before then, I was a philosophy major. And then um, and then I after I graduated, um, I was sort of shocked that that, you know, that I actually had to go out into the world and do something with myself and support myself. I just, I couldn't believe this was happening, you know? And, um, I think I didn't understand that that was going to happen. And then it happened. And then I got a lot, I had a series of jobs, um, for the next four or five years that were, um, yeah, about five years, I guess it was. I worked in a homeless shelter. I worked as a, um, as a caseworker at a lead clinic, I worked as a counselor in an abortion clinic in Birmingham, Alabama. I worked at all kind. I had all kinds of jobs. And wait, wait, what is that? First of all, where did you graduate from college? University of Colorado. Oh, that's where I went. Are you kidding? No, that's where I went. Oh my God, that's so funny. Yeah, I graduated in ninety one. Okay, I was ninety seven, so I was a few years behind. But yeah. Oh, 
So I had a fun time in Boulder. You know, it's a beautiful. Place. I did too. And it maybe. What did you fun. study? Uh, film. Film. Interesting. Yeah, but it was like the Stan Brakhage, you know, experimental hand painted frame. You know, it was very. I, I I was so I was so clueless. I thought it was like a narrative, you know, situation, and it was really just like film as art. And I'm I'm glad in retrospect that I had that education, but. I also sort of like laugh at myself for not even understanding what the school was about when I decided to major, you know, <laughs> like, it's just, I was just not mentally all there, you know? Yeah. You're telling me. Um, so, okay. So philosophy major at Boulder and then you get out and uh, what is a lead clinic? Oh, it was in Chicago. Um, so a lot of the houses and apartment buildings in, in Chicago proper, um, are covered in lead paint. And so, and, you know, and all the insides are, you know, and, and because it was only in the last, I think, well, at that time, that was in the early 90s. So it had only been in like the last 10 years or so that they, that it had been discovered that, you know, kids were, were eating pieces of paint that fell off the wall and were, you know, getting lead poisoning from this. So, um, so they had only recently, switched paint and were going through the city and, and, and taking all the paint off of the lead paint off of the walls. So they had this clinic set up where um, you would go around and um, from house to house and knock on people's doors and ask if their kids had been tested for lead poisoning. And if they hadn't, you would try to get them to come to the lead clinic. And I got hired because I spoke Spanish and these were primarily Latino neighborhoods. And so, um, so, you know, so I would just go knocking door to door and, and doing this. I mean, you know, I wasn't good at it at all. Um, and I didn't last that long. I think I was there for maybe eight months, maybe a little longer. Um, but it was, it was pretty interesting. Um, well, and it seems like, I mean, it seems like there's a pattern and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but there, I sense like a, an idealism in you. I mean, it seems to have come out when you, or at least to some degree, when you went down to Central America, uh, you know, and, and, and you described it in revolution and, you know, the jobs that you're taking, working in an abortion clinic, working in a lead clinic. I mean, there's like, a, I mean, is it, is idealism the right word? Do you have that strain in your personality? Oh, absolutely. I mean, last semester I taught at a maximum security prison, and of course, my dog's a rescue dog. I'm a I'm a vegan. I'm very into you know, animal rights and um, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm, like I'm like 92 percent vegan. Maybe not like oh, maybe great. higher than that. I'm trying, you know. But that's I have, great. I have those same. I think I have a lot of those same impulses. Yeah, that's 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 good. I mean, Boulder kind of instills it in you if you haven't gotten it already. Well, I mean, you know, I just yeah, I uh, I think that Boulder. It's a unique place. And I mean, I guess there's like Berkeley and there's Eugene. Um, but the, those kinds of places, I'm really glad in retrospect that I was there and that I had exposure to those things because I don't think I would have turned out the same way otherwise. You know, even if I had gone to, you know, like a really, really good college in the Ivy League or something, there's something like unique about the um, mix of, and, and like the experimentalist nature of Boulder. Do you know what I'm saying? Especially if you're on like into philosophy or you're into spirituality or you want to think, or you're idealistic and you want to think about different modes of being like, that's a great little Petri dish to live in, you know? Mm, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, so you majored in film and then where did you go after? When did you start writing? Uh, you know, I started writing when I was 20, when I was there. I sort of knew that I wanted to get into books. 
Um, like the collaborative nature of film rattled me. You know, I couldn't, uh, you know, it was hard for me. I didn't want to work with people or machines, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, or, or whatever. It just seemed like it was too much like logistical hassle. I just wanted to tell stories, you know? And so, uh, but I also didn't want to switch majors and I didn't want to stick around. I wanted to get done with school so I could go out and have adventures or whatever. So, I just started self-educating, you know, essentially when I was halfway through, got my film degree and then just flailed and was really bad for a long time, you know, and and I'm still, I'm still working out of that (laughs) all these years later. It feels like a long process for me. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like, like each year gets a little better, but you know, you start so low after college that it's just it takes a lot of years to crawl out of that. Yeah, well, and you, but you've had good success. I mean, like your, I think your publishing um, or your publication history and the career trajectory that you're on would be the envy of a lot of people who are attempting to do this. I mean, you've had a pretty good run, right? Yeah, I mean, I feel really lucky. I mean, um, you know, I've worked really hard for it, but I mean. You know, especially, you know, if I think about it, I did start late. I started when I was 25 and, um, but then I took it very seriously after that. And, um, what prompted it at 25? Oh, um, a boyfriend. Actually, he wasn't a boyfriend. I just, I met this guy in a bar and, uh, about, I just decided I was in love with him within like 30 seconds. And he, I said, uh, he said, I'm a writer. He said, what are you? And I said, I'm a writer too. <laughs> and then I had to write something. For real. That's really what happened. That's really what happened. And so so then it... I wrote something and, you know, cause he was like, oh, well, we'll trade work. And so then I had, you know, so then I gave it to him and he said, Hey, this is, this is pretty good. And then, you know, and then we like, after that, we spent basically every night together for the next several years. And he just said, well, every morning we're going to get up and write. And so we did, we got up every morning and wrote. Wow. And that's how I became a writer. Did, so, did, but was there any inkling of it before then, or was it like a complete surprise to you at age twenty-five that suddenly you were doing this? It was a complete surprise because I was so lost, I was so confused, I had no idea what I wanted to do, or I just I was so baffled by the entire situation. And then it was like this huge revelation. I mean, from the minute, from the day that I started writing. That was it. It was like I knew what I wanted to do. I knew immediately. Well, and then why? What was it about sitting down to write in those mornings that like made it so clear? Like, or what is it about the process that, in you know, that you love so much? Well, for one thing, it's very meditative. I mean, that I came to much late. Like, I realized that one thing that I got from it was that it was so meditative. I mean, that I'm, that I'm. I'm completely in my own universe and I can concentrate in a way that in my daily outside of writing life, I just, I'm not really, I'm never really concentrating that hard. Um, but when I'm writing, um, I'm so, I'm so focused and there's something very healing about that. Um, that though, I realized much later, that's been a, a recent a recent understanding. I think, but other things are, um, why, what was it about it? I mean, for one thing, I felt, I always felt like I was a little bit different or a little bit disturbed or something. I I just had this feeling that, that 
the way that I was seeing things was a little bit different from the way that the people I was talking to were seeing things and I'm not really in a good way. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I've had that that feeling before, you know? Yeah. I mean, not in a way that could be useful or anything like that. It just seemed like uncool. It seemed, it seemed unlikable. Sorry. I keep having stuff in my throat, but then when I wrote, I could express that in an artful way and it just came so naturally. And so, um, I mean, not easily, you know, I had to keep, you know, I I realized really fast that it required a ton of revision, but I realized that even the stories that I was writing were different from the other stories that, that people were writing and, and it was an asset. And I was really excited about that. You know, I remember, um, reading, um, Patty Smith's memoir. Have you read that? No, but it's, you know, I want to. Oh, it's so good. You have to read it. It really is. There's this moment where she's really young and I mean, not at all to compare myself to Patty Smith, but just to say that there was, there's like a moment of artistic, um, artistic connection that I, I could see what she meant and I, I could relate so well, which was that she was, um, she had never done any singing, any, playing music or anything. She had just been doing her, her photographs and her, her artwork. And she wasn't even really thinking of herself as an artist at that point, really. And so she walked into a bar and um, she saw the doors playing like, you know, the early days. And um, she looked at them up on the stage at um, Morrison and, and watched him and thought, you know what? I could do that. Like, she didn't feel awed by him as if he was some sort of God. She felt I could do that. And, and that's, I think what happened when I started writing, I knew the guy who I was, who I was living with, like I saw him writing and then I wrote and I just felt this thing of like, you know what? I can, I can do this. I mean, not, not that necessarily it turned out that I really could all that well or anything, but, um, but it was something that, that I felt this deep connection to. Interesting. And did you, I mean, did you, were you a huge reader as a young person? When I was, I mean, during my teenage years, no, but every other time, yes. Like when I was a kid, I read a lot. And then, and then I sort of, you know, went like, you know, psychotic for a few years, you know, like teenagers do. And I read nothing and just had bad boyfriends. And then, um, but then by the time I got to college, I would say like the very end of my senior year of high school, I started to get really interested in, in books again. And then, yeah. And then ever since I've been really interested in books, but I didn't read a lot of fiction, you know, as a college student, it was only when I turned, you know, when I turned 25 and, and started writing fiction that then I started reading. And then this, this guy, he wrote, he was much older than me and, um, he what, just wrote me boyfriend? this the boyfriend. Yeah. And he just wrote me a long list of books to read. And I just worked my way through the list, you know, like Cheever and Flannery O'Connor and, you know, all the stuff that I had never heard of or, or had, had heard of, but had never, um, read. So, and I just worked my way through that list. And then we, we got in the car and we just kind of gave up all of our stuff and drove across the country and we just kept stopping in different places and, and checking out books in the library and staying for a few days and, you know, so it sounds sort of idyllic. It sounds sort of idyllic. 
Yeah, it wasn't really. I mean, you know, it turned out that in the end, it turned out he had actually been married three times and he had kids like spread all across the country. And he was like, I mean, it turned out to be a, pretty much a huge disaster in like 18 different ways. Plus, he was an alcoholic and a drug dealer and it just goes on and on. But in those early days, it was great. It was just it was really powerful and, and dramatic and, and really and, you know, good. Is this guy a published author? I mean, is he a published writer? Has he had publication success? Or is it? did you kind of, like, take the reins? I mean, you know, he ended up... I don't think... I don't know if he's published anything since then. Um, he had had a couple published poems, and he had produced a few plays. Okay. Um, but I don't think he's been doing any writing since then. I mean, I've never seen his work anywhere since... But he's the one who, I mean, you have to be a little bit grateful. He's the one who, for whatever whatever reason, inspired you to, onto this track. Oh, I'm so grateful. Oh, absolutely, I'm so grateful. Once in a while, he writes and checks in, and um, I always write back and tell him how grateful I am. Oh, so, you, like, and it's, and it's always been, like, you've never had trouble working or finding the energy or the interest in working. No, okay, I did have one blip a couple of years ago where it was hard for me to work. I mean, I guess that, you know, sometimes I get really frustrated and mad and I just like decide I'm quitting writing and not going to do it ever again. But it's usually like two days later I'm writing again. Um, so I've done that many times, like a bunch of times. But um, I have, I did have a blip a couple of years ago when I just basically stopped writing for about a year. So that was pretty negative. Do you know but why? Other than Do you know, that, I mean, did you just, were you just burn out? No, you know, I think I was having a little bit of a midlife crisis or something, you know, something like that. I was, um, Revolution had just come out and, um, my memoir and I just felt really bogged down by all the, you know, it's difficult to go through all that publicity stuff. Some of it's, some of it's not as fun as you would think it would be. Um, it's not nearly as fun as this. I mean, all that other stuff. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm making a joke, but you know, Oh, <laughs> <laughs> this is sort of publicity, I guess. I don't know. It's more of like, just, is this publicity? I guess this is some, of you some know what? Form. This is great. This is no problem. Just having a conversation is no problem, but there are radio shows, you know, where you go, you go in and I don't know, I probably shouldn't even be saying this, but there's some radio shows where you go in where, you know, no one's read the book. Like they just, they have like a list of questions that they sort of read off of a page and you go, it's a very alienating experience, you know, and the, the, it's not like anyone talks to you. Like everyone's wearing this headset and they just kind of shove you, like they just kind of walk you down a corridor, stick you in front of the person. They're like, yeah, hey, that's all for it. Ah. <laughs> and then, you know, and then you're like, blah, 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 blah. And then you say your bit and then it's over. Yeah. And I mean, you know, that's great. I understand that this is important stuff, you know, to, for publicity to sell books. You know, I understand that, but you do a bunch of that stuff and it starts to feel really alienating. And like you start to, to, at least I did. And I, I started to feel like I, like, I started to confuse why I had done it all in the first place. Like, was I doing it all for that or was I doing it for some other reason? And it felt like because I was so doing all of this publicity stuff, I got confused and started thinking I was doing it for that. And then I thought, well, but I don't like this. So, you know, forget it. I'm not, so I don't want to write anymore because I don't, you know, and so then I just stopped writing. 
Okay. And so then I had to think about, you know, it took me a long time, a, a lot of months to just sit and think about, you know, what that was, what was going on. Okay. So, but it, you know what, it, it, uh, it brings up an interesting question and it's a question that I think any writer or any person really, whatever it is that they choose to do, uh, professionally or whatever they choose to spend a lot of time on is why. And it's not as easy to answer, at least for me, you know, and, and I think the answer can change a little bit, but do you know why you write? You know, um, people always say like, it's the only thing I'm good at. Like, that's the thing I always hear. And then everyone sort of laughs, you know, um, I don't actually think that that's true about just about anyone who writes because writing takes a certain amount of, you know, concentration of, you know, it just, it, writing takes a lot to really do something sustained. And so I, I don't believe that anyone, that that's all they could do, you know? So, um, like, I think, you know, like that you, that there's a lot of things you could do other than write. And like, I, I listened to Christine Scutts and I, Christine is like my dear, I love her so passionately. And when I heard her say, um, you know, it's what I can do. I was like, Christine, you could do anything. She's just, she's such a dynamo. She, I believe she could do anything. Like she could have been like a Senator or she could have been mother Teresa or she could have like done anything. And we are so lucky, you know, that she chose to write. But anyway, so I don't think that that's why I write, you know, cause I'm like, I do think that, um, that I, that it's something that I, I have some ability to do, but it's not like that just came naturally. I mean, it was just a lot of hard work. Um, I think I write because, um, it brings a lot of meaning to my life. Um, I have a hard time finding meaning because I don't believe in God for one thing and um, for a lot of reasons. And writing brings a tremendous amount of, re- of, of meaning. Like I feel connected to the world when, when I read other people's work and I feel like my work is talking in some way to that work. I feel like I'm part of the, part of the conversation about, you know, about, um, what's important about sound, about, you know, like how to express, how to express the mind outside of the mind. Like, is that possible? I want to contribute to that conversation um, about, it's just, it's, and it also just brings a lot of meaning trying to um, create um, collages on the page. It's just, there's something about that, that, that feels, um, that feels like I'm, like I'm expressing who I am in some way. So it's, I mean, it's like, it's like, it can be really, I mean, I'm speaking from my own personal experience, but I'm pretty sure it's similar is that, uh, it's really hard work and it can be really, really wrenching, but there is nothing better than getting it right. You know, it it feels really good. (laughs) It does. You know, I guess that's why we keep going back to it for all the suffering that it causes. Yeah, maybe. Uh, and you mentioned earlier uh, that you don't believe in God, and you said for a variety of reasons. Uh, you used to, though, in your childhood, correct? Oh, yeah, I used to. Yeah, I did. Um, not as a child, but as a teenager. When I um, got to college, I became a Christian. Um, I was very interested in liberation theology and Kierkegaard, which seems a little, they don't quite match, but, um, what, what, and, what, is, what is liberation theology for the uninitiated? Oh, okay. So liberation theology was a movement 
um, that grew out of the Vatican II Council, which ended in 1965, and it um, it was basically um, a, a bunch of priests who decided in, in Latin America who decided that the that the church was not focused enough on helping the poor. And so this was, and an, 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 a bunch of theologians started writing about it and, and coming up with a whole set of theories and systems to kind of try to marry Marxism and um, Christianity, which is a hard feat. Um, and so it ended up that, you know, it had a, so it, it had a theoretical component, but it also had a political component because, um, a lot of these priests then became very political saying that, um, that the church was not intervening enough in, in, um, in the government, um, that the, the church should have a much bigger role in representing, um, the poor. And so then they, they decided that, that, you know, Jesus was up. That Jesus was a revolutionary. That Jesus himself had been political, and so they decided that um, that they should be political, and that they should even organize themselves into groups and rise up and try to overthrow the government. And so that happened. You know, in Nicaragua was the place that I ended up. Um, going, well, there were several countries that I went to, but that was the country that I ended up spending the most amount of time in and um, where the, the, the liberation theologians had basically taken over the government. So that's liberation theology. Okay. And, you know, you, you said earlier, like, uh, that Jesus was political. Uh, maybe you, you might have better insight into this than I would, because I don't have like a super great, uh, religious history, uh, background or understanding, but it's occurred to me recently, or I, I've had this thought that, you know, Jesus got crucified. And the question is why? And he clearly posed a threat to people in power. And it just seems to me that the whole, like, give all your money away, uh, mm -hmm. that seems like the, I, that, that seems like why he got crucified to me. You start saying that and people start listening to you, <laughs> uh, especially <laughs> in that day and age. I feel like the people in power would just be like, we got to get rid of this guy. But, you know, I could be totally off. Yeah, yeah, that's possible. Um, I mean, actually, you know, I was just talking to my partner about this last night because he's listening to um, he's listening to the Gospel of Matthew on um, on his iPod right now, and he was talking about it, and he was saying that we we were trying to remember the four Gospels all came from, um, or no, three three of the Gospels came from. Um, a single source, Q, this missing gospel. And we were trying to remember, you know, the, the details about that. And we were saying that it's so strange because these things, they were written for political reasons. They were written for, uh, you know, they were, they were, they were so messed up in so many ways that we really have no idea what was going on. Like we don't have a clue. I mean, so, yeah, I don't know why. I don't know why, really, he was crucified. I mean, there are there are political um, possibilities. You know, people who are very religious, you know, have their ideas. But I don't know why he was crucified. Maybe because he was the son of God? <laughs> who knows? And it was fated? It was fated? <laughs> you know, I guess anything's possible. Um, but when you say that you no longer believe uh, and that you didn't really come to Christianity until you were, a, wait, late, like, late teens... Um, so what was the window, you know, what was the window of your belief and then what prompted your unbelief? I became a Christian when I was 17, when I first got to college. 
Um, these days, nobody goes to college at 17. I don't know why that is, well, but these it's days, probably better. Very few people become Christian when they get to college. I feel like everyone abandons it. It seems like, no, or maybe I, maybe, I feel like everyone's like experimenting with stuff or, you know. Yeah, you're probably right. I mean, actually, no one became a Christian at my college either. It was completely crazy that I did that. Well, no, I'm, that's but, I'm thinking of Boulder, and I'm like, there's no, you know, there were very few people who went to Christianity when they got to Boulder. Most of them, ab- like, abandoned it and put, like, a freaking vet sticker on their car. You know? <laughs> totally. Totally. I know. I know. I mean, I was just, I can't believe I did that. But anyway, so, um, so I became a Christian when I was 17, went to Central America when I was 18, so I think I was like maybe about 20 when I gave it up um, and never looked back. And I mean, I gave it up because, you know what, it just didn't make any sense. I mean, the more I looked at it, the more absurd it seemed. Yeah, I mean, that's how I felt, too. I mean, that's that's essentially my... And you know the thing about it, though, is mm. that I don't want to be... There's been so much... Ang- I think there's a lot of anger, especially because I was raised Catholic, and so you get fed up with certain things and there's certain like cognitive dissonances and, you know, lapses in logic that make you feel, especially once you start to come into your own mind, uh, you can feel a little pissed off that it was ever like pounded into your brain. But I think a lot of it, a lot of the problem to me is at the level of, uh, translation or what's the word that I'm looking for. It's like, it's just so poorly presented you know what I'm saying? Like, it's, I just wish we had, or it's like, you know what it is? It's a, it's a, at the level of interpretation. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like a lot of the people who are tasked or who have tasked themselves with being the uh, arbiters of interpretation when it comes to scripture, or when it comes to, you know, uh, t- religious teachings from days of yore, uh, just do a really shoddy job of it. And they don't adapt it to modern times or, or translate it into language that's really, um, you know, simple as it should be, I think, when someone's teaching something well, as opposed to making it complicated or, um, you know, needlessly complex or like puzzle like, you know, so. Well, I mean, you know, you gotta, um, I mean, you gotta sort of give them a little bit of a break because, um, look at what they have to work with. Like, it's not like they can take the Bible and change it, you know, and the Bible is really a strange thing. It's a strange text for sure. Have you read and it? And then, totally. You haven't read it? I mean, no. I mean, I've had it read to me and I've read parts of it, but I've never sat down and read the Bible, no. Oh, you should read it. It's actually kind of interesting. It's a good book. It is, okay. What's, so, the, be- what's, what's the best part? <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, I think it's all really good. Um, I mean, the first five books, you know, the Torah are really good. I mean, even just, just read Genesis. Just read the first book of the Bible. Um, Ecclesiastes is a really good book. Uh, Job, it's a great book. The Psalms, I used to memorize Psalms. Um, God, I sound really religious. <laughs> <laughs> um, but okay, so anyway, so first of all, they've got the Bible to work with. And the Bible is a very strange thing. Like just, all you have to do is read Noah, the story of Noah and the flood. That is such a strange thing um, that, you know, it's just, it's very hard to present that story or the story of, of Abraham and Isaac. I mean, it's very hard to present those stories in a way that make any sense to us. And then the other thing is that um, the, the ideas that aren't exactly in the Bible but are an important part of Christianity, um, those ideas are so strange. So, you know, just things like the Trinity, um, 
I mean, I'm Jewish, so I didn't grow up with any of this stuff. So, but you know, the Trinity. Then, um, what so are wait, some of the other? Wait, wait, wait. You you were raised Jewish, and then you became a Christian. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. Oh, you didn't? No. Yeah. Okay. My poor family. Wait, so no. for me, it was a real rebellion. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That is that that adds a layer of uh, intrigue. Um, where are you from? You went to Colorado for college. Is that where you were raised? No, I was raised in Chicago. Okay. Okay. Um, so yeah, and you had like a three year window of like Boulder Christianity. That's so awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and so what do you, what were your parents thinking? Like, what were your, I mean, I don't want, I don't want to make you spell out too much of your memoir because people should read it, but like, what were your parents thinking when you meet this guy and you tell them you're taking off to go join the revolution in Nicaragua? Well, I mean, I didn't actually tell they were they were completely freaked out, but I didn't actually tell them. I just left and then I wrote them a letter from Mexico saying, I found God and I'm going off to join the revolution. <laughs> that's, like, that's like, you know what? That's like a really noble thing to do. But I think like I could have written a letter to my parents saying like, you know, I'm on a road trip dropping acid and that would have been like easier to take almost. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and like, it's a lot less noble or, you know, or interesting. <laughs> your parents must've been fl- flipping out. Like I <laughs> they were flipping out. They were completely flipping out. I mean, I called once, once in a while we would call our families collect. And each time it was just this like screaming, like harangue, come home right this minute. We'll send you plane tickets. Come right home. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, gotta go, mom. Oh my god! It's like you know, <laughs> youthful idealism, all that energy, feelings of invincibility. Um, but then it comes head to head with reality at some point, you know. And I'm curious about, um, you know, because I I still have it. I don't think it ever leaves you if you have kind of an idealistic bearing. But like, how do you temper it against the harder realities of the world that? you know, are, are there and, and kind of undeniable. Like, do you find yourself having problems with those tensions? Well, yeah. I mean, all the time. I mean, especially as a vegan, I mean, I take it all really very seriously. And like, no, um, you don't even wear leather, nothing like you're full. No leather, no, no feathers, you know, no down or anything like that. So, um, and so, I feel like, and no wool is another one. Um, it's, I mean, but like, if you think about just one little tiny person, or my partner's a vegan too, so two little tiny people, you know, not doing any of this stuff, um, not using this stuff compared to this just massive number of people who are just, you know, just putting all these animals in these little boxes and murdering them like 10 million, 10 billion a year. And the oceans being depleted, like it's just, it seems so, um, massive, but then I figure, I mean, how I like to think about it is, well, you know, I just don't want to do it. Like maybe it's not helping anything, but I just, I just can't do it. That's how I feel. And it's like, you know, I've been ridiculed and te- I mean, it's to the point where like, you just get good at accepting the teasing and it's like, it's still this thing in, in, at least in the culture that I'm surrounded by where it's the kind of thing people make fun of you for. It's ridiculous. It's an, you know, there's some, something absurd about the choice. I think in maybe a town like Boulder, it's a little bit more mainstreamed or whatever. And, uh, you know, but 
I've just been through that. And especially as a guy, there's something decidedly feminine about it. But as a straight guy, when you say you're a <laughs> vegan, you're sort of a pussy and you don't like eat meat. But I just can't, I, you know, for me, I'm just trying to think about this stuff. And it's like, it doesn't make sense to me. These animals are suffering terribly. They're not that different from us. I mean, they're, they're clearly terrified and in pain. It's like, I don't want to be a part of that. And, uh, you know, I think the other thing is that, uh, you know, at the, <sighs> there's so many different, there's so many different reasons why it's important to me, but like I, one of the arguments that I don't hear nearly enough, uh, is the ecological argument, you know, mm -hmm. when it comes to like climate change and when it comes to con like habits of consumption and mm -hmm. you know, what, a, what a person can do, because that's really what it comes down to. Um, you know, in a lot of ways, it's like, you look at all the troubles in the world and you look at what we're up against. Uh, you're like, what the hell can I do? And you look mm -hmm. at like, you know, uh, climate science and you look at what's coming at us, uh, probably inevitably, because I'm not sure if we can write the ship, you know, enough at this mm -hmm. point to make an impact. But it's like, why do I never read something really, um, bright and impactful about like food choice? Because, Everyone's like recycling and bringing like, you know, their own cloth bags to the grocery store. But it's like, you know, we need more people saying, you know what, if you're not eating animals, or at least if you reduce how many animals you're eating and you buy your food more locally, like that's probably the biggest dent you can make. I think, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think that you're right. And I mean, one argument that really bothers me, I mean, I've gone through like every, every kind of possible scenario that you can think of in terms of sort of being belittled for being a vegan. I'm sure I have at some point in the last few years, you know, since I became a vegan in 2008, um, gone through because, I mean, you know, you can imagine like my family, everything, you know, oh, but then yeah. when my partner, it was tough. My part, it was tough when my partner wasn't a vegan, when he became a vegan, then it got much better. Um, what, so, what, what sent you into like, what was it? You know, I'm sure it was an accumulation of things, but there, was there one pivotal moment where you're like, I'm done. Yeah. Well, you know what? I just ate everything. I ate, I mean, I wasn't a vegetarian. I just ate, I ate chicken and anything. Um, veal even, I mean, I even had foie gras a couple times. Right. Like I never even thought about it. And then I was, introduced to the world of podcasts and I started downloading all these podcasts and I went into the cooking section and I downloaded this one. Um, and it said, I didn't, I was just downloading a lot and I wasn't really looking very carefully and it had some, it said something about free range chickens and I thought it was like a recipe thing. So I downloaded <laughs> it, put it on my bike and then it was this thing about, about free range chickens and how the free range ones are treated. And I was so horrified. I just, I couldn't believe it. And so I was like, I guess I'm never eating chicken again. And then Wait, even, I down... even free range. Yes. Like even free range. Even cage free chickens are treated like shit. <laughs> You're teasing me now. No, I'm not. I'm, I mean, honestly, like I, I thought that was like less cruel. I mean, like, maybe it is less cruel, but it's still cruel. Oh, that's horrible. It's horrible. Just do a little bit of research. You'll, you'll be shocked yeah. at, you know, at how free range, how, how, how stupid that type, that name is free range as if, as if they just have these big fields and the chickens just get to run around their whole lives, See, that's you what know, I'm thinking. That's happily. What, that's what I'm thinking, you know, cause I'm like, I mean, how is that possible? I don't know. Chickens stop laying eggs after the first couple of years and they can live to be like 14, 15 years old. You think they just let these chickens just 
happily romp around in the field for the next, you know, 12 years. Right. For one thing. For another thing, there's no way they get to romp around in fields. I mean, the whole, there's just so many. Anyway, um, if you just look into it, you will, you will discover it. So then the same podcast had one about like pigs. So I downloaded that one, and then that was it for pigs. And then she <laughs> what, had what, one what, about what podcast is this? That, uh... It's called um, Compassionate Cooks: okay. Food for Thought. Sure, yeah. And then she had one about like how to get your protein if you're a vegan. How do so you, how do you, how do you get your protein? Um, there. Oh well, I mean, you can answer this. This is an easy one. Everyone's always like, oh, how do you get your protein? I swear, I think I get too much protein. Okay, yeah. I mean, it's like what, nuts, beans? Nuts, beans. I mean, anything. Tofu, seitan. I mean, how do you get your protein? Why why did you become a vegan? Was there a pivotal moment for you? Um, I mean, I read a lot about it. I, you know, I... I think just being exposed in Boulder, I just started thinking about it. It's like, what the hell am I putting in my body? And, uh... I, this is going to sound sort of counterintuitive, but like, dr- you know, the drug experimentation year and a half of my college life, you know, it was a very compressed period, sort of like your Christianity. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like you were, you know, finding God and I was like dropping acid in the desert or whatever. But, um, it was kind of a similar situation. It was a very compressed but very important period of my life. And, you know, as funny as it might sound, it actually made me really... Uh, a lot more conscious about what I put into my body and how it made me feel. And, and I say that like, not only in the context of like, you know, getting high and having these like, kind of like heightened sensory experiences, but also the downsides, like feeling like absolute shit afterwards and, you know, trying to kind of like untangle why, et cetera. And and not just like I'm dehydrated with a headache, but like I feel awful and want to like die, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, you know, not that I was ever, uh, suicidal in any kind of intense way, but just, you know, I paid attention to my moods and I, I got curious about what I was putting into my body. And then I tried it for a while and I just felt a lot better. And then I read like books by John Robbins and, um, you know, you start, re- all you have to do is watch like one video of the, I mean, if you have an ounce of sensitivity, I, I don't know how, let me put it to you this way. I don't know how you could actually confront the cruelty, like actually look at it in a video and not be shaken by it. Like I'm kind of amazed by people who can be like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> you know? I know. And they're good people. They're good people. You know, it's like, so I don't know. Is I, your family mostly vegan? Your wife and kids? Oh, no, my grandfather was a butcher. He's a like, Sicilian. He was a, an actual butcher. Um, wow. Not, not like a killer, you know, but like, a, or I guess he was a killer, but he was a, you know, he had a butcher shop. Uh, it was called the Listy Meat Market. <laughs> and, uh, how about your wife and kid? My wife has been a vegetarian since she was nine because she watched a video about chickens and freaked out. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she, but she was the kind of vegetarian who ate like, you know, like noodles and cake. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so she got like, I think like anemic or she was not healthy in her twenties. Uh, and so then she started eating a little, but then we've gone off of it, you know, and, uh, you know. Maybe a little butter. I think I'm not perfect about it, but I feel pretty good about my percentage and I'm always working to improve it. Like, uh, mm. I eat almost all plants, you know, mm. uh, and I feel good. So I don't know. It's like, it's a kind of a, like an accumulation of things, but I'm an animal lover and I just, I can't get them out of my head, uh, when mm. I'm looking at a plate. I mean, I don't know. 
Is that how mm-hmm. you? Is that how you are? That sounds like that's how you are. But. Yeah, I mean, well, it was just once I realized what was going on. I mean, even down, like I read the thing about about what they do to ducks, you know, to get the down, how they keep them in these dark boxes so they'll grow their feathers faster and then you know once every eight months they take them out of the box and they they pull the feathers off and it's called ripping they like rip the feathers off and they like scream and struggle and then they put them back in this all bloody they put them back in the dark box i mean it's just so horrific and it's like that's it i am never wearing anything with feathers or i mean i even call ahead at hotels and say i would like a down free room like i can't bear the thought that my stuff is like you know, came from that. So, yep. So I'm pretty serious about it. Well, that's good. You know, I like that. You know, I think that maybe some people listening, I feel like people get so angry. I don't know why. I and mean, it makes me sort of frustrated. You know, I feel like defensive about people who are into animal rights and stuff because I feel like they get bagged on too much. Yeah, they do. They do. Yeah. But I mean, I've had a lot of that, but I just, I don't give a shit anymore. Yeah. Good for you. Um, so let's talk about, uh, you know, we kind of, I I just kind of touched on this, but like depression, moods, rejection, things that writers go through. Um, did you have to deal with a lot of rejection in those early years? And I mean, do you still, and have you ever had to, um, really confront like something seriously dark, uh, from a mood perspective? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I really only feel like it's been in the last year that things are finally looking up. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> after all these years, um, I think, let's see. Yeah, I mean, those first years after graduate school were especially bad. And I mean, I think that probably most of your listeners who are writers have are experiencing that right now or have experienced it in the past. I mean, it's just it was just horrible. I mean, I would send out my stuff. And back then, you know, you would actually send it in the mail and, you know, you would get rejection letters and I would get so many rejection letters that I wouldn't be able to get the mailbox open. And it just went on month after month after month of getting all these and sending out stuff and it was so painful and not making any money, like, you know, trying to support myself, adjuncting at all these different schools and my family just being like, well, we're not going to give you a dime. You know, you have to figure this out or get, you know, my dad was always telling me, you should just get a job in a bank. And, uh, my mom thought I should be, my mom thought for a while that I should be an x-ray technician or an airline stewardess. So those were her great ideas for me. So, (laughs) um, so, and yeah, they were dark. Those were dark days. And then, so first the stories were rejected and then, the book was rejected and then the other book was rejected, you know? So it was, it was bad. I mean, it was really bad. And then how did you finally land? You landed with McSweeney's initially, correct? Yeah. I love McSweeney's. They're so amazing. Um, yeah, they really kind of saved my life. Um, they published, how did it happen? Well, I just sent, um, I was sending little stories to my little, I write little short shorts and I sent them to McSweeney's and they rejected them a bunch of times. And then I sent some and then Dave Eggers wrote me an email and said, um, I've been seeing your little shorts around. I, I really like them. I've been writing them too. We want to take this one. And, um, you know, if you have any others. And then I wrote back and said, well, I have a whole manuscript. 
And then he spoke back and said, um, well, send it over. And so then I sent the manuscript and then they published that like in a box with, with, a, with his, like it was like three independent books, three separate books, one by Sarah Mangusa, one by Dave Eggers and one by me. And they were all in this box and it was amazing. I was so happy. And then they published my novel after that. And that was the beginning. That's what, I mean, you know, I feel like that, I feel like McSweeney's, especially if you're working in literary fiction, that that's a fortunate place to begin. Yeah. I mean, I had, by that time, by the time they took, they took the stories and published my story in McSweeney's, I had already, I'd had a lot of publications by that time. Like I had, a, um, I'd been publishing in little journals all over the place for a couple of years. Noon magazine, um, that Diane Williams edits. She was really, I think the first to really like believe in me. Um, good, have you interviewed that's a good, Diane? That's a good person to, uh, to believe in, you know, but I would love to. Oh, you should. Oh, she's brilliant. So, um, so she was the first person to really believe in me and take up my banner. And, um, and then McSweeney's was the second. And so, uh, how do you keep going? You know what I'm saying? Like you, you had those moods, you had, uh, rejections, you had, you know, dark periods or whatever. Uh, I think a lot of people listening can probably relate to that. Some of whom might be stuck in those. Like, did you, do you have any insight into how to push through? I mean, I did so many things to just push through. I mean, I used to keep a list of people who, I was going to show one day, like an I'll show them list <laughs> that I would look at every day before I started writing. So I just kept it in a little folder and I would like sometimes remove a name or put on a name. Like if a person no longer, like I felt like they had, they had come around on me a little bit or, or if I decided that I didn't care about them enough to be on the list and they would come off the list. But if someone new um, had rejected a story of mine or something, then they got on the list. So I was like, they'll be sorry one day. I'm going to write this great book and, you know, they'll be sorry. So That's, I did that. I, I like that. That's like, I mean, because you see, you know, you have this like very sweet voice and you're a very sweet person, but you had like a little vengeance list essentially. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Um, and what else did I do? I mean, all of them were negative. None of them were really positive. None of them were like... Um, you're the best. You can do this. You know, like another one was <laughs> like no, affirma kept... no affirmations. None of that. Stuff. <laughs> another one is, um, I kept a list of my greatest failures and rejections. And I would just look at that and be like, do you want to add another one of this list? Do you? God, you're like shaming yourself, but you know, I, I can, like, I'm starting to think of like my greatest failures and I'm thinking of people who have rejected me and it does give you a, a weird shot of energy. You know, like if you're looking to find ways to get energy and you know, it's like whatever works, I guess, you know? Yeah, well I did that. And then I took tips from running magazines. I like read, you know, running magazines and they have all these little, you know, things that they do to try to get you to stay focused. So I did that. Like what? Like what are some, give me some, give me some tips. Well, I'm trying to think cause it's been a while since I've, since I've really thought about that. I mean, probably I should, you know, Oh, I remember I got, this was on a fortune cookie and I just kept it and it really, really helped. Um, it said, you will be a lion for your own cause. 
and it seems like kind of stupid, but it's actually, it's actually, you know, something that I never really thought about doing before. So I just put that on my desk and I just looked at it every day. I will be aligned for my own cause. Like no one else is going to be aligned for me. Like no one else cares if this gets written or even if it, even if it does get written, you know, no one's going to go, you know, to bat for me on this. Like it's got to be all me. So you became that was one thing. Well, no, yeah, that, you know, like again, I think like it's, it all seems to make sense. And I think that people who wind up making it through the maze, like you have to sort of uh, find your own little strategies that work, you know, and you talked earlier about um, writing and how it has this meditative quality for you and how you're able to concentrate in ways that you might not otherwise be able to. And I think I read somewhere that you write by hand, correct? I do everything by hand. Yeah. Okay. I so, still do. Okay. Because when you say like, oh, it's very meditative for me and I'm able to concentrate like that right away, I'm like, that's amazing because I feel like the act of writing because so much of it these days is tethered to a computer is actually like fraught with uh, like risk when it comes to the concentration and meditation. So you do everything longhand in a notebook or like, what are you writing in? Well, I mean, I have um, sort of a paper fetish, so um, I have different things that I write on. Like one time my dad's business, you know, he closed down his business and he had this huge box of fax paper. So he gave me this giant box of fax paper. And I just felt like, you know, it was those rolls, like like a spool, <laughs> you know, remember those things? Yeah. So I just wrote on those for years until I made my way all the way through them. And then my dad was like, I was like, dad, I finally made it through all the fax paper. And he said, oh, I've got another box. I was like, no, no, not another box. <laughs> Did you take it? <laughs> no, okay. I refuse to take it because that stuff is hard to write on. It's really shiny and smooth, smears easily. Um, so, yeah, I write in notebooks or I have um, different kinds of, I have tracing paper that I like to run. It's very thin. Um yeah, I have okay. a lot of different. What kind of pen do you, do you use? I mean, a pen or a pencil? Mostly pens. Um, I mean, I don't have any. I'd like to write with nice pens. I try to buy. I try to sort of splurge on pens a little bit because it's it's more pleasant. Um, but I can write with anything. So what's there a, was a what's time a good when pen? what's a good pen? I mean, some not very expensive pens are those. Um, you know those those ballpoint ones that you can get in um office depot in like office depot um the there's like they're like micro tip ballpoint pens and they come in a box of ten and they're just the office they're just a office depot brand whatever that is okay okay yeah I like a micro point i mean that's like my thing like you know I think it's like pilot razor point or Sharpie even makes now like a really like fine point marker that I like. Oh yeah. Well that's, that's good. I mean, so you do write by hand, you write some by hand. A little bit. Increasingly, I think I need to just because I'm just, I don't have the discipline. I need to get, like, get a computer that doesn't have internet or whatever, but you know, a lot of my work life is tied to the internet and it's just, it's a bad combo. It's really hard, you know? So I, I like the idea of sitting down with a notebook for like three hours every morning and just working that way. I feel like I would get a lot more done if I could get into that rhythm. Oh, it's great. And then you, and, but then you have to type everything in. So then I have to type everything in then I print it all out and then I revise by hand. 
Oh, you do? Okay, so you, you force a revision by hand after the typing process. Do you change? Uh, all of my revisions by hand. Do you change anything when you're typing it in? Like, do you make revisions on the fly as you're doing the transcription to the computer, or do you wait until you have a printout? I mean, sometimes I do, but not that much. And that sounds crazy, but I still feel like when I'm in that meditative space is when I make the best decisions. Usually when I make decisions on the fly, they tend, you know, just like, just like while my computer is on and there's email and, you know, things dinging at me and stuff. Um, usually it tends to be just not quite as good, like just like flatter language, not as, not as much energy in it, or, or, or it tends to be more sort of normal sounding. So, and, and do you write and you write first thing in the morning? Is that your time? I do. Well, first I take my dog for a walk okay. and then I make, coffee from my partner and I who's he's still usually in bed and then I and then I start working okay how long of a walk for your dog is this just like just around the block or do you like take an hour or something like that no like just like 15 15 minutes something like that I sort of I I sort of get that I mean like I I have to kind of like move around a little bit before I can sit down what do you do? Do you first get up and write well it's sort of like sort of similar I get up I go for a, a walk all right, I take the dog out, I go for a, or I eat something, I go for a walk, and then I come home and I work with caffeine. Mm-hmm. So it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's essentially that same thing. But I feel like it's either, you know, it's usually either late at night or early in the morning that people who work regularly work. It's just got to be quiet time. Exactly. It has to be quiet time. The middle of the day for me isn't, is, is always hard to really focus. Yeah. Um, don't you have a kid, though? Yeah. That, you know, so what's a, that like? <laughs> that, that's like... Um, it's wonderful. I think from a creative work standpoint, you know, it's left me at a crossroads uh, because it's so hard to make any money doing uh, books that I feel like spending time on it is somehow in some way stealing from her. I'm work. I'm wrestling with that emotional quandary, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but it also is a focusing factor, you know, because you only have such a limited amount of time. So it's like you either get it done in that window or you don't get it done at all. So in some ways it streamlines the process and it makes the work process more, um, powerful or, you know what I'm saying? Like it, mm-hmm. you've got your two hour window and you either get up early and do it, or you're, you're not going to get to do it that day. But it's so great. You know, like whatever, whatever it takes away, it gives back tenfold. And that's, mm-hmm. sort of, that's sort of how I feel about it. But, you know, I, I struggle like it, it, it can seem, and you know, I guess you have to teach or, but it's, it's just a big struggle. And I'm in, a, I'm in a struggle right now, like trying to figure out how to make it all work so that I can provide like, like a good life for her. Like what, the, the things that I want to provide, you know, which is quite a bit, it's, it's just hard to imagine how it could happen just publishing books. So it's, it's trying to navigate all that. It's really tricky. That is really tricky. Have you thought about teaching? I have taught, you know, I taught at uh Santa Monica college, but I was adjuncting and it was just like, it was paying me nothing and taking up mm. a ton of time. And it's just, you know, I enjoyed it, but I think I would have to have something in a cheaper town because I live in Los Angeles and then I would mm. have to have something, um, that was not just like adjunct, you know, it'd have to be I think the tenure track with the bigger salary and everything else would have to happen. So mm-hmm. we'll see. I'm trying to suss it out, but I feel like so many writers are trying to untangle that ball of yarn. I mean, please tell me I'm not the only one. <laughs> You're definitely not. Every friend I have yeah. 
is pretty much all my friends are writers for the most part, and they're all, you know, we've all been asking this question for years. I mean, do you ever feel like, you know, I mean, it's just like why you have to be writing a book. And I think that's why I asked you why you write, because that's been a question I've been trying to ask myself lately. Like, what's my why, you know, and it it certainly can't be for money. And um, that's not a healthy motivation anyway. But, you know, you really you, you have to just be doing it for the love of it and for what meaning, like, like you said, like the meaning that it brings to you. And then, you know, if something happens to pop and you you get that lucky ride like wonderful that that's just like it feels like kind of like winning the lottery to me anyway mm-hmm. uh, from the outside looking in but like do you have uh, looking forward i mean are you operating according to some like you know maybe quiet but like very organized plan like do you see yourself 10 15 years from now having millions of copies in print and like this is going to work if i just keep going or have you kind of given up on that and do you think to yourself, I'm just going to do this for the meaning that it brings and any other residual benefits are just gravy? <laughs> I love the way you put those two. I mean, those two are so, um, you, you put these two completely crazy scenarios as if that, as if it's like a choice between those two. It's so funny. Um, yeah, I can't imagine there ever being a million copies of, you know, all of my books combined. That's just, there's no way. Um, but I do have grand plan, um, and that's, you know, to create great art. I mean, maybe that's too high of, of a, of a thing to, 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 to wish for, but, or to strive for. Um, but it's definitely about creating art. Like I don't feel so much like a writer as I do an artist. Like I feel really committed to, um, contributing to this um this exploration of what what language is used for and how to how to um represent sound and, and things like that so um and it's and it's a little bit philosophical for me too um so i never but the thing is that i have a job i have a full time job and my job is to think about writing in that way you know so that I can present it to the students, you know, as art. And I'm, you know, and so, and they pay me plenty and I have health benefits and I don't have kids. Um, I do have a partner who also works. So I, so that's not a question for me, but I mean, I can see how it is for you, but for sure. I think that, I think that if I didn't have this job, what would I be doing? I mean, if I wasn't able to write the way that I write now, I probably would eventually stop because I don't find the sort of the the chase for book deals and all that. I find that to be so unpleasant and unfulfilling that I probably would have stopped. Yeah, it's not a fun. It's not a fun part of it. You know, it's fun. I guess it's fun when you get a deal or it's fun to know that your book's going to be in print. But like all the minutia of getting there is gross (laughs) or not gross, but just unpleasant is maybe the better word. But I can't help but think that there's, that there's gotta be a way for someone like you to make this work without too much bending around because, you know, you do have so much energy and, you know, I mean, just the things that you do just spell out 
to me that this should work for you. Well, I, know. I mean, I've tried all these different things. I mean, this is turning into like therapy for me, but like, these, are, these are, <laughs> no, it's fine. These are all conversations that I have with myself and I feel, I don't know. It's like, I've tried a lot of experiments over the years and I've tried to put together like a, a, a package. <laughs> mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? I don't know. I'm just like, let's try this. Let's try this. Let's make this. Let's be uh, flexible. Let's see if this works. And, you know, I feel like eventually, God damn it, it's got to come together. But I don't know if the culture cares enough. You know what I'm saying? Like, it might just be this is the cultural moment and the audience for books is just very specialized. And that's just the reality. And maybe working against that is foolish. Do you know what I'm saying? But then you look at certain authors and like, you know, you see it happen. So there's always those stories to point to where you're like, oh my God, that author took off and, you know, has a readership to sustain her or to sustain him. And, you know, so there are, I think those like really like um, rare needles in the haystack that I think so many of us look to with hope. <laughs> mm, like Cheryl Strayed. Yeah. I mean, exactly. She's like, mm-hmm. she got the ride and I'm, I, I talked to her for this show and I don't know her well, but like you, one just gets the sense that like it couldn't have happened to a nicer person or somebody who would receive that good fortune with a better head on her shoulders. So it's nice to totally. see. Totally. Plus the book is really good. Have you read it? Yeah. Yeah. No, I loved it. I mean, cause I, I, I completely loved it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was, uh, you should hear my, you should listen to me talk with her. I was like, you know, gushing over it or whatever, but she, uh, you know, she's like the example that so many of us, I think, look to and say somehow, some way, maybe. And, you know, I almost, I asked her and I didn't hear back cause I'm sure she's like buried in, uh, in so many requests and has done so much freaking media that she's just burnt out. But I want to talk to somebody cause I spoke with her right when the book was just about to go and she had just come out as sugar. And it was like this very interesting moment mm. in retrospect, um, in her career, because it was like, you could feel it was about to happen, or at least I could, I had a sense. Uh, I think a lot of people did. It was like, this thing's going to take off. There was a lot of goodwill for her. Um, people were just rooting for her, you know? And I would love to talk to her now or talk to anyone who's been through that process, you know, after that year of huge publicity and all that success and like the sudden jump in tax bracket or, you know what I'm saying? And say, okay, how do you feel? Like, was it luck? Do you feel like this is what you got, what you deserve? Like, how do you, it's gotta be hard to make sense of it. You know, like, I don't know. Or maybe it's not, yeah. maybe it's very easy to make sense of. I don't know. You know, um, one thing that I noticed about one thing, one thing that I think about with her, I mean, because I also just read um, her uh, Dear Sugar, that that um, you know that compilation of her letters. Oh yeah, that tiny, came tiny, out. Tiny beautiful things. Yeah, tiny beautiful things. Yeah, I I just I actually I listened to it on Audible, um, and and that she wrote most of that before she wrote Wild, or maybe at the same time that she was writing Wild or something. And I mean, I just get the impression that she's just a special person. It's like, and so I guess that what I would, but like, if I was to tell you what I think you should do is I think you should just be a special person. How? (laughs) Well, maybe you're already doing it. I don't know, but just lean toward that. Like she had all of these letters in there about like, she would talk about, about um, how she, oh, how she had been asked to, you know, to do this particular thing, this, this, um, this internet, 
you know, advice column and she wrote about how it made no sense at all to do it, you know, how, but she just wanted to do it. And so she just did it and she did such a great job. I just feel all of this, um, energy coming from her. That's, that's, um, I mean, I don't really know. I met her for once for like two minutes, so I don't know her. I'm just getting this from, from reading a book. Um, that all of this energy of um, having an instinct and following that instinct, you know, like, and not looking, you know, not looking side to side unless it involves her family, you know, like only, like not sacrificing, um, you know, the art or, or the emotion unless it's about her family. And so, you know, her, her, her kids and her husband. And so... Anyway, so I mean, I guess I'm just saying to you that I feel like if you just concentrate on being who you are, like, you know, just being the special person that you are and, and, and underscoring that, like amplifying that specialness. That's the answer. Well, I'm going to work on it. <laughs> uh, I've, had so much, I've had a lot of fun talking with you. This has been really great. And uh, I sort of don't want it to end, but I feel like we, we have to if I'm going to make a show of it. So um, I thank you for spending the time. I congratulate you on all your successes, and I really look forward to seeing what you do uh, in the years to come. Well, thank you so much. It was really fun talking to you, too. All right, you guys, there you go. That is Deb Olin Unferth. Go get her books. Minor Robberies is the story collection. The novel is called Vacation, and her memoir is called Revolution, The Year I Fell in Love and Went to Join the War. And you can find Deb online at Facebook, I believe. Thanks, as always, to Kill Rockstars. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And uh, thanks to Katy Perry. I used uh, one of her songs there. I think it's called California Girls for the opening segue. Uh, transition. Don't forget to get the app, the free official Other People app. It's available for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. It is the best and most elegant way to listen to this program, to access the full archives, etc. And once again, the app itself is free, so please go get that. Uh, all right, I hope you're doing well. I'm not sure what it means that I saw two cast members from the movie Clueless within 10 minutes of each other in separate locations. I don't know what that means. How do I untangle that? How do I decode it? What is the universe trying to tell me? Please remember that John Stuart Mill spent several nights in prison for distributing birth control pamphlets in a London slum and that Martin Heidegger and Hannah Arendt had an affair at a squalid hotel next to the Marburg Railroad Station in Germany. That's it for now. Thanks to Deb Olin Unferth. Uh, thanks to you guys for listening. I hope you have a nice day. I'm going to go outside. Uh, perhaps I'll take my dog for a walk. Maybe I'll see Paul Rudd. Or maybe I'll see Brecken Meyer. You know who he is? He played Travis Birkenstock in the movie Clueless. If you will recall, Travis Birkenstock. <laughs> <laughs>